Kia ora Wellington, you're on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, this is B-Side Stories, the stories of the people that make Wellington tick, and today we have science communicator, scientist, author, Laurie Winkless, hello. Kia ora David, how are you? I'm doing really well, Good. thanks, how are you? Good. Oh, very well, thank you, very yeah. happy to be here. Great, well, thanks for coming in. Um, I feel like you're a, do you know the term s- slashy? <laughs> no, but I know I'm intrigued. Oh, well, you know, it's like singer slash actor slash model. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I, I, I feel like you cover... Yeah, I like that. You cover yeah, that, a few of those. Yeah, I agree, I agree. <laughs> so, with that huge prompt, um, let's maybe, if we could just start with um, your science background. Yeah, so um, I'm a physicist by training. Um, I kind of, in terms of my education, I have a degree in physics with astrophysics from Trinity College in Dublin, hence the accent. (laughs) Um, And then I went on to do a postgrad in space science at University College London. And then I guess really my training as a scientist began at that point because I joined the National Physical Lab in the UK. So it's kind of the west of London. And that's really, yeah, that's really where I learned to be a scientist. So my research there focused on something called thermoelectric energy harvesting. So basically harvesting waste heat and turning it into electricity. There's a class of materials that can do this without any moving parts. So yeah, that was kind of my research. And I was there for, I think, seven and a bit years um, doing work in and around the kind of functional materials area. So that means materials that have form, but also function. They do something else as well as just physically being present. Hmm. And so you kind of say you really became a scientist when you were doing that research work. Mm. Does that is that sort of how you see it? Yeah, I think I came out of my kind of education thinking that I was brilliant and not even brilliant, but that I knew everything. You know, I thought, yeah, yeah, I know how to do this science malarkey. <laughs> but really, it's only when you know, you have to apply for your own research funding, you have to design your own experiments, you're asking really fundamental questions that that actually is the process of doing science. Um, So yeah, I was lucky in that I joined a lab that was really, really supportive. So I was a baby scientist surrounded by grown-up scientists. That's how I saw it. And they were very generous with their time and their energy that they put into me. And yeah, I learned a massive amount through those seven years. Hmm. And so the seven years take us to, when was that? Yeah, so that's a few years ago now. So I've been in New Zealand for uh, three years, just over three years. Um, And it was kind of a couple of years before that. So yeah, I guess I'm coming up to five years ago now, which is a bit scary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I actually uh, was living in London at the time. um, And... I kind of just wanted, I'm someone who likes to get a new adventure every so often. You know, I like, I get itchy feet. And I had been writing a bit uh, alongside my job. And within the lab as well, we had a program called Science Ambassadors Scheme, where our lab actually supported us to go out and talk to school groups or to grown-ups or to go to music festivals or basically anywhere that would have us (laughs) to talk about science, talk about our research. So I've been doing that throughout my research career really and they were really supportive of it and I enjoyed it and I started writing about different research so not just my own I started writing about other people's research and trying to write news stories and just trying my hand at it really um 
And I just thought maybe I could try to do this for a little while and see if I could make a job out of it. Um, kind of of the frame of mind that if nothing will change if you don't try it. So I just thought, let's let's give it a go. So left the lab um, and then that led to a few different experiences working with Nobel laureates, which was <laughs> quite an odd one for a year. Um, and then working for myself as a science communicator full time in the UK um, while also writing my first book. And that's really where my love of writing was kind of cemented, I suppose. Mm. And so it sounds like quite a natural kind of evolution mm. of, of dabbling. Yeah. It wasn't planned, mm. <laughs> but it does seem to have it does seem to have kind of worked out to date. Uh, I'm one of those people who's a real planner. You know, I'm very logical. I like to plan things. And none of this was in my plan at all. <laughs> so I think as I've gotten older, I've become a bit better at taking risks and trying new things and, yeah, just taking opportunities that might seem a bit like a sidestep. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've been become a lot better at doing that. And so you said you were maybe for about a year working mm. as a, a science communicator. Mm. Um, yeah. what, what did that entail? So it depended really on who I was working with. Um, so I did a bit of radio. I worked with the Naked Scientists in the UK. I was their physics news correspondent for a little mm. while. That was really fun. Um, and yeah, I got to pick a news story every week and just talk about it on the radio, which is great. Um, and then I did a lot of work with big organisations in the UK, like the Royal Society um, or the Royal Academy of Engineering. And in some cases, that might have been training scientists and engineers to get a bit more confident in speaking to the media. It might have been writing stories or profiles about particularly brilliant scientists who were getting awards, for example. But then I also did some kind of top level stuff where I was helping these organisations to develop better strategies um, about how to communicate science to wider audiences. Because in theory, they already do that. Like you look at the Nobel Prize people like Nobel Media um, you know, everyone knows about the Nobel Prize, but actually there are lots of people in the world who would never think to go onto the Nobel Prize website to see who the scientists were who got the prize that year. So, yeah, I like to kind of do that kind of top level stuff. Let's really think mm. about how we communicate. Let's think about who we want to read this stuff. So, again, it was comes back to being a bit of slashy, as you said, <laughs> a combination <laughs> of kind of media, print and online, uh, TV and radio, and then working directly with organisations to help them become better at communicating science. Mm. And then so these kind of different threads, this writing mm. experience that you were developing kind of came together and you've published a book, right? Yes, I've published one and I'm working on the second one. Mm. Um, and the first book came about in a very weird way, actually. Um, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably too much time on Twitter, but uh, a few years ago, so I think it was 2014 maybe, um, I had just left the lab and looking for, you know, new interesting things to do. And this this guy on Twitter messaged me and said, Oh, I really like all the stuff you've been writing. Like, it's really cool to see, you know, a kind of a young female physicist talking about hardcore engineering and talking about material science in a really accessible way. Have you ever thought about writing a book? I was like, um, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit of me said yes, but I didn't, would never, ever have thought to pitch that. Um, anyway, met up with him. He ended up being a publisher at Bloomsbury big global publisher um, and he asked me to think about some potential ideas for a book 
I went away and developed a few. He really liked this one about the kind of science of cities and we called it science and the city in the end. Um, and it was a kind of a way to unpick and discover some of the science and engineering that makes our cities work. Um, it was initially focused on London because I was there, but very quickly spread out and has included cities all over the world. Yeah. Hmm. One thing that I'm quite curious about in mm. terms of science communication, general communication, uh, I know knowing your audience is a really big one and, and you sort of talked about you've done it at uh, a few different levels or mm. to different audiences. When you have something like a book, yeah. which could be read by anyone, <laughs> do you think about that, a, a, a reader? Yes, you actually, the publishers kind of force you to do it really early on. Um, when you're putting the proposal together, you have to think about who you're writing for. But then once the book comes out, there's kind of no, you have no control over who's mm. going to read it. So um, I guess for Science and the City, I was really trying to write for people who are kind of curious about the world around them, but may not have any science background. So that was really kind of my target audience and that's that's still a pretty big audience but I saw them mostly as being adults I guess people who left school a long time ago didn't necessarily have a relationship with science anymore but who in all probability lived in urban area because the overwhelming majority of the world's population live in urban areas so um, that's kind of who I was writing for I guess less so for my peers and my colleagues in the lab um, they were all very supportive of it, though, and gave me lots of interviews and suggested other people for me to interview and reviewed chapters and made sure that, you know, I was really determined to get the science right. But what kind of surprised me when the book came out was how well it did with teenagers mm. and even kind of very bright young children as well. So it's not at all written for children, not even slightly. Mm -hmm. But I guess there was some idea that it was more accessible, perhaps, than you might expect for a book on that particular topic. Um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of teenagers actually get in touch to say that they they read the book. And that's been a lovely thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, nice work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that the uh, like popular science is quite a big uh, genre yeah of, of, yeah, of yeah. books and uh you've got another one in the works i do um <laughs> this one i feel like i'm having second album nerves you know like <laughs> they talk about in music um yeah this one's been a, a longer time coming than i would uh, like i guess but there's a reason for that the topic is pretty enormous um the book is called sticky and it's all about surfaces, which sounds a bit niche, but really, as I see it, all of physics and chemistry has something to do with what goes on between surfaces. And actually, most of the devices and the technology and the buildings and the fabrics and everything really that's around us in the modern world has to do with how things interact between surfaces. Mm. Um, so that might be things like friction or it might be things like why ice is slippery or how geckos climb up walls. So it's a very, very, very broad book. And over the last year, I've really tried to, I guess, pare it back in one sense, um, rather than covering a billion topics, which is my natural tendency because I'm enthusiastic and I love learning new stuff. Um, I've tried to pick fewer topics, but bury down into a bit more detail in them. And there's, there's a few equations in this book, unlike Science in the City, but I am confident that the readers will kind of, if let me hold their hand along with along with it, really. Hmm. 
So I think that idea of why uh, ice is slippery is, yeah. was the first time I came across your work. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, had, um, I took a creative science writing paper at um, the School of Modern Letters at Victoria University, and we, I guess, were very lucky to have a, an advanced uh, draft to, to just have a read-through and a, a critique. Mm. Um, that was a really cool paper. I love doing it. <laughs> and... Uh, now you've you've had a much bigger role in that. Yeah, I actually taught that course this year mm. um, in this academic year, which was pretty scary. You know, Rebecca Priestley, who developed the course originally, um, is a real kind of mentor for me. She's been really supportive of me even since before I moved to New Zealand via you know Twitter. Um, she's been really supportive of that. And to kind of step into her shoes was a bit scary, actually, if I'm honest. But it was such a lovely experience and I really hope um, that I'll get to teach the course again. Uh, it was a lovely class of students and honestly, I think the day that I got to the afternoon, I got to hang out with your class really made me think that maybe I could do it. It gave me a little bit of confidence mm. um, to kind of think I could do it. So, yeah, that, that was a lovely experience for me this year and just everyone's gotten their reports back. They've gotten their scores and what a wonderful class they were. Yeah, that's great to hear. I wonder if you could sort of elaborate a little bit on that idea of creative science writing. Mm. So I think this is one of these things that everyone has different opinions on. Um, but I, I think working with students as diverse as a film major to a working GP and everything in between showed me that there isn't one right way to do it, really. Um, I think that creative science writing is about telling a story that is a science story, effectively. Um, and you might do that in different ways. You might take the more kind of explanatory role, which is kind of the way I write. I want to explain and educate and entertain all of those things through my writing. But you might also take a very, um, a much more artistic role. You might actually tell a really beautiful story and you sneak little hints of science into it, like stealth science, which is a type of science writing that I really enjoy, but it isn't something that I do necessarily. Mm. Um, so yeah, working with all of these students kind of broadened my horizons, actually, to be honest, about what what can and can't be defined as science writing. Um, honestly, I think if it's anything to do with the natural world or how things work, even in the loosest sense, I think that you can catch that in scientific language. Um, so, yeah, it's actually made me read read other work that I wouldn't have read previously, possibly. Um, so, yeah, mm. it's, yeah it's, it's, an, it's a, I think it's one of those things that doesn't have a straight answer, to be honest. <laughs> what, what does? Wonder, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I guess like you were saying about uh, such a broad definition or what you're working on at the moment with um, surface interactions, yeah. there's, I guess, the, the deeper you look at things, the more interesting or unexpected. Oh, yeah, they, for they can sure. Become. Yeah, and I think with uh, Sticky in particular, there were a few uh, topics that I picked because I knew they didn't have answers. So we actually don't fundamentally understand what friction is, for example, mm. even though this is something that we rely on and we use all the time. Once we get down to individual atoms, our maths no longer make sense. <laughs> so yeah. I knew there were topics like that that we did that we had a big question mark around. But there were other topics that I thought were kind of settled. Um, 
but that I thought would make an interesting story. And actually, yeah, as you said, as I've buried down into them, uh, I've uncovered even kind of more mysteries. And eventually, when I'm interviewing someone, eventually they'll... I keep asking them questions, you know, and eventually they just go, yeah, we don't we don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of love that. Like, I, I think that's a huge part of science. And mm. and I, I want to show people and make people realize that science is not always about giving answers. It's actually about asking questions and it never stops. The process of doing science never stops. And and that's what I'm learning in this in writing this book. Um, but I'm also hoping that I'll communicate that to the readers, too. Mm. Nice. You kind of talked about how with this uh, the creative writing paper you mm. were you were reading more, maybe more broadly, um, which maybe kind of brings me on to another book related thing that you've got going on at the moment. Um, you've got to give a little campaign. Yes, um, this is a slightly possibly overly ambitious uh, campaign that I've set up with a few friends. Um, to try and get a book called Inferior, which is written by a science journalist called Angela Saini, who's British, um, to get it into every secondary school in New Zealand, every state secondary school for now, mm. if we assume we can reach the funding um, target. Uh, and the reason I want to do that is because I feel that it is a very important book on a topic that is so often misrepresented. And it is an incredibly well-written and well-researched book. And from an entirely selfish point of view, it has given me the kind of tools and evidence to argue things like the idea that women are inferior to men or biologically inferior to men. Um, and in that book, Angela kind of, she didn't go in with this intention, but she really unpicks a lot of these ridiculous stereotypes that have just seeped through society. So... Like, for example, one is um, if you look at brain scans of men and women, so people say things like, oh, you know, men and women's brains are just wired differently. That's just, they're just different. If you look at scans of both men and women's brains, you see more variation between the men or between the women than you do between the sexes. So that idea that we are just fundamentally different and therefore there's nothing we can do. We all have set skills and that's it. Set, you know, abilities. It's just rubbish. Mm. <laughs> and I think that a lot, well, I, I know from working with a lot of schools over the years that girls internalise a lot of that. Um, and a lot of that idea of, oh, well, I'm just not really that good at maths because it's kind of a boy thing. Um that was something I had for a little while as a kid too, but thankfully I had a really supportive family who made me realise I was being ludicrous and actually I have a really natural aptitude for this. And mm. I see that a lot with girls, really natural aptitude for these hardcore STEM subjects, but have complete lack of confidence in their ability to become a scientist themselves. And this book, I think, will help to give those girls the confidence and the knowledge that actually a lot of these stereotypes are just rubbish. But also talk to the boys about the fact that these stereotypes are rubbish and are also damaging them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been trying to get this book into into the schools. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> sure. And uh, this is sort of um, inspired by or paralleled with other attempts around the world. Yes. So I have a very good friend in the UK called Dr. Jess Wade. Um, she's at Imperial College in London and she is a superstar. Um, so she's a postdoc in physics, uh, works on solar cells, 
But in her spare time, she has been writing Wikipedia entries for women and other underrepresented groups in science every day for, I think, about 18 months now. So mm. I think she's written like over 500 Wikipedia pages at this point. Wow. And that has inspired tons and tons of people to do the same. But she was the one who kind of kickstarted this idea that this is an important enough book that we should try and get it into schools. Um, and working with a couple of her friends in Ireland and the UK, they managed to get a copy into every single secondary school in Ireland and the UK. Like this is, I think mm. it was £25,000 that they fundraised. Um, and that led to a campaign in New York, in Australia, in Canada, and now here in New Zealand. So we're kind of part of a very informal uh, mm. and very unplanned global movement, uh, all really inspired by Angela's work, but really kind of tied together by awesome women in STEM. Hmm. That that's fantastic. It, it sounds really <laughs> great, and um, I, I find it quite interesting how you you've got this planning science background, but you've kind of just uh, ended up being a writer and science communicator. Yeah. And and this project as well is similarly just sort of um, arisen out of maybe a need, but also a, a curiosity. To yeah, for sure. Make it happen. Yeah, because I think um, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? I can't just complain about it, right? I need to actually take action. So, uh, yeah, that's um, very fun to live with, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if people are listening and they might be interested in uh, helping out on this inferior campaign, uh, how could they track that down? Um, so the easiest way is to go to the Give a Little page, which is a New Zealand page, and just search for Inferior. It's the very first thing that will pop up. Um, and the cost of getting a book into a school in New Zealand is about $22 in total. So that includes the book and all of this the distribution, which is being managed centrally, so we don't mm. have to all do it in our in our spare time. Um, so, but any donation amount is so so welcome. Anything at all would really help us. Great. Just um, coming back to an idea, you sort of talked about the, mm. the differences between men and women. Um, I went to the science communication conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in Christchurch. It was very good, and. We were sort of talking about that idea of uh, men are like this, women are like that. Yeah. And uh, that really silly, per pervasive, uh, perhaps too widely held idea that uh, the men are uh, intellectual or yeah. rational or, or something. And women aren't, but maybe they have this thing called women's intuition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which... Is maybe just the same thing. Yeah, right? definitely. It's just the same thing for sure. It's just a lot of our language is just being couched in certain ways throughout time, really. And it almost always has minimized the impact and the work of women and, and maximized those the work of men, to be honest. So it's a lot of it is to do with with language and the way that we think and and the way that we define leadership qualities and the way we define success and work ethic. All of those things are kind of couched in a particular language that makes you associate them with male traits. And it's just not true. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think. Um, Can I just jump in with a question, yeah. Karine, here? Um, I saw on your, um, on your website that, well, you had a tweet from your way in here. <laughs> Talking about the traffic on the way in. Yes. 55 cars you saw from the bus, 43 had one occupant. 
12 cars had two occupants. Scandalous. And yeah. how many cars had more than two occupants? Yeah, zero. Um, and I was just counting the cars in the lane beside me. So I wasn't counting the trucks or any of the larger vehicles. I was just counting the cars because I was on a bus. OK, I should say that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was, I'm a big I'm a big mass transit fan. Um, I was before I wrote Science in the City. Um, uh, but I'm a huge mass transit public transport fan. And in New Zealand, we have a real obsession with our cars. It's actually the highest car ownership in the OECD. So... In terms of per head, we have more cars than the Americans, which mm. is oh. really terrifying. <laughs> so, Listeners, yeah. burn your cars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't. That would be bad for the environment. <laughs> but it is just that thing of, you know, you have to give people alternative ways to move around the city. Um, you can't just kind of say, no, you can't do this. You can't have cars. You have to actually provide alternatives. Um, and Wellington's not so bad compared to most of New Zealand. But, yeah, it has a mm. lot of work to do. Mm. Um, yeah. And your bus trip was quite long as well. It was. I was only coming so, from Petoni. It's normally like 15 minutes. It probably took mm. me 45 minutes. <laughs> there was a bit of a prang on the road in the end. Mm. Um, but yeah. Mm. Maybe some better lanes for those buses that are transporting more than one or two people. Yeah, for example. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a good start. Um, and just wondering, connected to that, um, do you use, I mean, it seems like your science communication is quite broad and you use lots of different avenues to communicate what you're thinking about. Yes. Do you have kind of preferred ways of contacting people or are you getting different groups through different media? Yeah, it's kind of a bit of that too. Um, I I guess my natural tendency will be to write because that's that's how I process information is that I, I kind of verbally just blew it out onto a page <laughs> um, so that's kind of my natural way of communicating but I am aware that I probably need to do a bit more face-to-face communication a bit more face-to-mic communication um, <laughs> to reach those audiences who aren't necessarily reading the articles so yeah I try and do a bit of everything and then of course I go into schools and do you know talks at universities and stuff too so I do try and get as many people to reach as many people as I can um but yeah, I, I am but one. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to maybe check out your thoughts on Twitter, yes, a, your, your handle is yes, my handle is Laurie underscore Winkless. I think <laughs> that's bad, oh, eh? Laurie checks out. Thank you, excellent. <laughs> yeah, and I'm there all the time, and I also write for lots of other different places, but I share pretty much everything on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, and cool videos of you going around science in the city. and Yeah, it's true. I got to do some of the coolest things when writing that book, like going down into sewers. That was actually very cool. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound it. Um, and then going into train tunnels because I'm a massive train nerd, like massive. Um, so, yeah, it's got to do a lot of really fun things for that book. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, Mary. you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I've um, been speaking with Laurie Winkless, uh, scientist, science communicator, author of Science and the City, uh, campaigner for the Give a Little uh, campaign for Angela Saini's book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story, and author of upcoming uh, to-be-released, <laughs> Sticky. Yes, yeah, Sticky, indeed. Thanks, David. Cool.